Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed any or all of the more than 125 interviews in this podcast series, will you help spread the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? Think of it as another helping hand of AA that we can offer to alcoholics everywhere. On today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews, my guest, Dennis B., has the distinction of having the longest period of continuous sobriety of anyone I've interviewed to date. Dennis got sober in AA in May of 1962 and has enjoyed more than 61 years as a dedicated and enthusiastic member of the fellowship. At 86, Dennis is actively engaged in all aspects of the program, sharing his depth of experience in the daily meetings he still attends in person and online. Growing up in a family of coal miners in Manchester, England, Dennis first tried beer at six years old and loved it. Living in an environment where drinking was woven into everyday life, he started drinking as an adolescent and working in the coal pits as a teenager. By his late teens and early twenties, his consumption of beer and hard liquor was already wreaking havoc in his life. Subsequent stints in prison and geographical moves did little to abate the unraveling of his mental, emotional, and physical states. By twenty-five, Dennis had done a lifetime of damage to his mind, body, and spirit. That ominous bottom towards which he had been digging was beginning to resemble a grave. He finally called Alcoholics Anonymous and attended his first meetings at a time when the fledgling program was just beginning to take root in the UK. Since day one in AA, Dennis's involvement, commitment, and service have touched thousands of lives and, no doubt, saved lives in the process. With more than six decades of AA recovery, Dennis's story is rich, colorful, and chock-full of experience that speak to the ups and downs of living life according to the principles of AA. His tale is a rare glimpse of how successfully AA can work over the long term. I think you'll find Dennis's words to be most enlightening. So listen carefully over the next hour, and you'll hear, through Dennis's thick Manchester accent, how one man's life can be so profoundly influenced by active involvement in AA. And now, without further ado, I'm pleased to welcome to AA Recovery Interviews my friend and AA brother, Dennis B. My name's Dennis, and I'm an alcoholic. I want to welcome you to AA Recovery Interviews today, Dennis. It's really a real treat for me to get to speak with someone with the number of years of sobriety that you have, as well as someone from the UK. I've done a number of interviews with folks from England and the British Isles, and it's really a, a thrill for me to be able to talk to you today. Your uh, sober date was? 1st of May, 1962. How old were you when you got sober? Just getting on for 25 if I put the math together, then we're talking about, uh, what are you, about 86? Is that about right? 86. My birthday was the 7th of July, a couple of weeks since. Well, happy birthday to you. How do you feel at 86? No, I feel 21. <laughs> I feel 21 now. What do you credit your longevity to? Everything. Everything to alcoholics and omnis. Mm-hmm. Steps. The steps, mm-hmm. the traditions, and also meetings, and I suppose you could say experience. Yeah, and that comes that comes with the uh, working the steps, working the program, and staying in action. You know what? What's really great here is that my friend um, Dan G said that he met you and some of your uh, AA brothers in a meeting over there. So. Tell me, what was life like for you uh, in your early years? When when you were a kid, what did you know about alcoholism or about people that drank? What was your perception of those people? Well, to be honest, I would uh, I come from just outside. I'm, I've got an accent, as you can tell. It's a northern accent. So I'm from, I come from just outside Manchester uh-huh. in a place called Bolton. Right, I was born before the war. I was born 1937, 70 July. And uh, the environment was, uh, we worked in the coal mines, right? So it's, it's, an, it's an environment of like, 
you know, every industrial coal miner. Most of them, I would say, nine out of ten men were coal miners, or the fathers were coal miners, or the brothers were coal miners, and uh, about seven out of ten women worked in the cotton mills. Mm-hmm. And uh, I come from a very poor background, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When I say poor, you know, poverty, you know, trying to make ends meet. Uh, yeah. I can remember the war, World War II, you know, air raids, sirens, and uh, my mum running me to the air raid shelter, you know, in her arms, and this, that, and the other, you know. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it was poor, you know, it was very poor. My, my, my dad looked after seven of us with himself, like, and he worked in the coal mines, you know. Mm-hmm. And there was there was things like you know um, the pawn shops and this not the other not mean like maybe my dad had pawn his suit if he had a suit or maybe my mum had pawn a wedding ring and this not the other not mean just to make ends meet till Friday Friday was a payday that's when my dad got his wages you know so then everybody like you know it was the standard tease up till then it was all like you know making ends meet. Yeah, with, as far as alcohol's concerned, my dad, I think my dad was probably the first uh, person to give me a drink. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I was about six or seven. I don't quite know. I was very, very young. I remember, like, you know, I loved my dad. He never he never laid down. I never put an hand on us. You know, I mean, I had to chastise us, you know, with a belt or whatever, a smack or anything like that. He was a good man. You know, he's a good man. He was a bit laid back. And he come from a big family, you know, mm-hmm. a really big family, you know what I mean? And uh, it, it was all poverty, like, you know. And uh, anyway, what happened? Uh, was drinking a part of that? All the culture, it was a, all, all it was over there, right, was a drinking culture. Yeah. We drunk, and it was like beer, you know, and it was good stuff. It's palatable, you know what I mean? You didn't have any hangovers and nothing like that following day. Yeah. You know, it was just later on till the escalated, you know, my drinking escalated. But what happened, I just wanted to say, so my dad, like, you know, sunny, sunny hot day, right, especially weekend, maybe I'd get a, 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 a two-pint jug of a beer, mm-hmm. right, and I would say to my dad, my dad would drink in it, you know, and he said, I said, Dad, what, what's that? And he said, it's beer, it's beer. You know what I mean? Give me a drink, Dad. And he said, no, no, it's not for you. And then he said, go on, Dad, give me a drink. And he gave me a drink, right? And I'll tell you something now. I loved it. Huh. I loved that taste. I yeah. loved it. I loved that warm feeling going down inside me. And mm-hmm. then back up in my brain, like, you know. I wanted another. I mean, my dad was a miner, he was a strong man, and he could not have surprised him my hands off the jug because I wanted more. So that's where I would say hey, I probably were born in alcoholic. So you loved it from the very first taste. Yeah. And the environment all around you really supported you doing that. Can you tell me what the difference is in, in the town that you grew up in between people who drank heavily and actual alcoholics? Well, that's a good question because... I don't think everybody who comes to alcoholics anonymous is alcoholics. So that the difference. And somebody wrote about it, I think it was 1997, uh, where they, t- they talked about the heavy drinker and the alcoholic. What it was with me, I never had one drink out. That mm-hmm. set the craving off, the phenomenal. And once I took that first drink, that was it. I wanted this second, and there was nothing in the world was going to make me not have that second drink and third and so on. Mm-hmm. That's why it's a mental illness. But I had the craving, right, for drinking. I set it off. As soon as I had to drink, that was it. The phenomenal the craving was set in. Now, this was beer from the time that you were a, a kid. You mentioned six years old. Was that the point at which you started drinking regularly, or how old were you when you when you started drinking? About 12. Yeah, we, we was kind of doing things like, you know, running around with gangs and nicking community wilds and back. Mm-hmm. And this, that, and the other. We loved it. But I'll tell you what happened, Howard. You know, my mum and dad, no disrespects, right, didn't chastise as much. There was a lot of fear-based stuff, you know what I mean, because of everything we was going around, you know, the wars, the, you know, just getting over the war, right. I just went my own way from a early age. 
But my behaviour, I was like that, what do you call ADH now? That was my behaviour. I was 90 miles an hour. So I'm an alcoholic, right? So I've had a couple of few drinks when I was a kid. My behaviour, when I started drinking at 12, 13, I was going in pubs. My sister said to me, she said, Dennis, right? I said, I'll drink when I was you. She said, you were drinking when you were 13. Right? I love drinking. It changed the way I felt. Yeah. All the inadequacies, all the fears had disappeared. And I was just going on with it. And I had that insaleable appetite. I get that. Now, you mentioned a sister. How many siblings did you have? It was five of us. I'm a mum and dad. Right. I had a brother who was an alcoholic, who yeah. died an alcoholic. He had an outside, right? Come back from work, sat in the pub, got that first drink. What happened? He sat down and he had an attack and he died on the way going up to the hospital. They couldn't revive him. He was 10 years older than me and um, we was different. We had three sisters as well, okay? And I, I was see. the youngest, right? So all my family's passed on now, apart from one who's got Alzheimer's, and they feed her in bed. She's about 90. Mm -hmm. I lost one in a couple of years since. Okay, so they're all gone. God bless them. That's yeah, me I when I, that looks like me when I was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's my little granddaughter. My son and daughter-in-law just got back from Prague, where uh, her grandparents are from. Check. Yeah, the Czech Republic. Now, so you're 12 years old, you start drinking. The consequences as you were going through school, what were some of the consequences that you faced? And did you ever draw a connection between them and your drinking? You know, I was kind of like, you know, I had my circle of friends, people like uh, this guy, God bless him, had one eye. He only had one eye and used to have fits. Mm -hmm. So maybe I was drawn to their sickness as well. But really, it was inside me, if you know what I mean. And mm -hmm. then there was another guy who's done that used to beat shit out of him all the time. Mm. And I was the same. I got the shit beaten out of me with a woman when I was uh, about four year old, when my mum was looking after me. And my mum was at work. She was trying to get some money, you know. And and she, this woman was eating. She had a, a book belt and she used to tie me to the middle doors and whack me with it. Right, oh. so this happened for a while, and then what happened? My sister come down one day. This woman called Mrs. Blaze. She'd had 22 kids. But what happened when I'm, I'm in there, right, tied to the middle of the door? My our Phillies comes down. She said, I want to pick Dennis up, right? My mama come back from work. Miss Blaze says, Who's in there? Mm -hmm. And I were tied to the squeezes. They called them squeezes, right? Washing clothes. She probably, I don't know what they called them in America, but that was it. So there was a lot of damage done because I wanted my mother. And I think what happened, all that, and not getting my mother, not getting that biological love, right, you know, it, it set me, I've become adolescent, I've become all that stuff, yeah. you know, and, um, right, I did my own things. Mm -hmm. I was I was wrapped up in self-centeredness, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. By the time I'm 13, 14, oh, you know, we were drinking like, only at weekends, and then we started to work. So I worked in the coal mine. So then we'd do as soon as we come out of the, the, mm -hmm. the pit on Friday, as soon as we'd done our shift, that was it. We got our money. It was like the pub. But we, I used to get, I never went home on Friday until I got the drink. So we started off with the pub, right? When we come out hmm. and we got that over, then we went, we got to the Irish Labour Club. And then after that, we were back in the pub. Till mm -hmm. about up ten, that's how it went. So everything is like work, sleep, and booze. Did you black out from that drinking, or or were you able to just get up the next day and not have any issues? Uh, we just get up and next day. Yeah, there was no hangovers. I didn't have any hangovers in that. I was. It was more or less all, all what we're drinking then was beer, but then. Uh, you know, I, I kind of like start, they started things happening. When I was about 16, I worked in the coal mines. Then I run around with a load of uh, guys who worked in the coal mines. And then I started, you know, I was I was look after myself, you know, I physically look after myself. I did a bit of boxing early on, but what happened? They said to me, you're not going in because I wanted to hurt people, hurt people, hurt people. So I kept away from that. But like I was a bit of a street fighter, you know, I had a mm -hmm. lot, lot of fights. 
especially at school. I was brought up a Catholic. You know, sometimes we had to defend ourselves Catholics against Protestants. Mm-hmm. Not in this country, not in Ireland. You know, even my mates, like, you know, like if they bring anybody in, they used to bring, now and again, they bring a fresh face. Most of them knew me. But then they say, who's this guy? Next minute, right, I didn't know, following morning. Then I've got the, uh, like, I'm putting the pieces together and finding out that I've blacked this guy's eyes. You know, and he said, look at this, Dennis. He said, what you've done? Well, one day, <laughs> they got hold of me. I had a real good drink on me, right? A really, really, really good drink on me. And they said, Dennis, look at him. And he said, sorry, mate, we yeah. can't have this. And they all got together about four or five. I couldn't say a lot, otherwise they'd have beat me up. So I said, F you, I'll drink, I'll drink on my own, see? Booze, booze, booze. You got it? Yeah, so you left your mates to drink on your own. That's it. So what I was doing, I was getting a bit more money than I would, my job. And then I started drinking. Uh-huh. I liked it. You know what I mean? I wanted that bit more of oblivion, and I wanted a bit quicker. So then I started drinking rum. I was uh-huh. a rum drinker. Mm-hmm. You know, this uh, Jamaican rum, it was good. And I, I used to put a little bit of peppermint in it, well, rum and pep, right? So I went on that. But I was looking for more. I wanted it quicker because mm-hmm. it slowed down, right? The beer weren't doing it, so I need to get stronger drink. So were you cutting back on the beer and just filling that gap with the harder alcohol? Yeah, then I got the night. I learned things like, you know what I mean? I mean, I finished up my drinking rough cider down in Bristol. I'm talking about Scrumpy. Have you ever heard of that? You know, I, th- I want to say I've heard about it in one of the stories uh, that, that never made it out of the first edition or second edition. It, now, remind me what that is it again. It was half and half. It was sweet and rough cider, right? And I was drinking that down in Bristol because I was doing geographicals. My uh-huh. mum and dad didn't want to know me, you know, because... You know, I, by this time, I'd get locked up. The police were coming in and this, that, and the other. And it was like drunk, disorderly, assaulting police, causing the phrase, right? And I finished up when I was 21. I was in detention centre, all related to drink. Hmm. And I was looking I was looking at getting sentenced. I've been in prison up in Manchester, strange ways. It's a very heavy mm-hmm. prison. I don't know about, I've, I've been in there about three times altogether. So did your family along the way try to get you to stop or cut down? Did they try and no, help no, you? They wanted, no, they just got, they were sick of me. You know, I was coming home and I was causing, then I started having blackouts. This was one of my blackouts, right? I come home, I'd be on my own. And then uh, what, and the following day, I'd come downstairs, right? And my, my dad said, look at this. And, uh, you know, all the furniture be all over the place. Right? I had a blackout, right? And I was... I was doing things in blackheads, you know what I mean? And like, mm. you know, have you ever heard of electric meters? Yeah, uh-huh. well, they, they had them on the wall. They used to put the shillings in there at one time, the old English money. You know, I kicked that off, right? Smash everything up, like. My dad said, What are you doing? Look at this. After, like, you know what I mean? And I just go, Oh, oh, that's all. Because my dad was scared of me as well, his fear. You know, I, I was really in the house with a, 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 a fist of iron, but I was full of fear. You got it? But your dad couldn't suffer your behavior anymore when you were drinking and coming home drunk. My dad never touched me. Ne- my dad never laid one thing on me, right? And my mum as well. You still suffered at the hands of that woman. Please. And also my brother, because my brother didn't like me, because, listen, my auntie used to live now and again, come up and live with my mum. Now, she loved my brother. He was called Frank. She ate my guts. Mm. So he's getting everything. I'm getting nothing. Then my brother started bullying me, you know, because he's 10 years older than me. He was a big, strong boy. You know what I mean? So he started bullying me, right? Yeah. And I got nothing. I weren't like a brother. There was no brotherly loved. You got it? Then when I started mm-hmm. drinking... My brother, sometimes I drink with my brother. Mm-hmm. He used to say to my mum and dad, see this man here, this is me. So he pointed to me and said, he drinks like there's no tomorrow. This is your brother saying this to your parents. Because he was drinking with me, he knew. 
How did you feel when he told your I parents just had that? I to swallow, Anna, because it was right. They knew I had problems. You know, I was in the grips of alcohol. Yeah. Alcoholism. So during your teenage years, until you hit 21, you were in and out of trouble. You were in and out of jail. You were you were uh, you were fighting. I was in, I was in a senior detention center, the first one in UK. Why didn't you know Stoke on Trent? Short, stiff sentence. In this country, I don't know what they do in America, but in this country, it used to give you Boystel, right? And it was for three years. Boystel, have you heard of it? Boystel. Boystel. Yeah. Now, what happened, this was a short sentence, and an MP in, in Liverpool were called Bessie Braddock. I'm going by 50s now, you know. She mm-hmm. said, okay, we'll, we'll do these extension centres. Short sentence. So I was in there, and when I come out, I said, that's it. Before I come out, I was fit, fit, you know, immaculately fit. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm not drinking again. I'm going to do something because I, I was an athletic I was very good at sports. I was good at football. I was good at swimming. I was good at cricket. I could do anything. I was quite good at boxing, but I was too aggressive. I told you that before. So I had uh-huh. to stop it. I promised myself I'd never have a drink. I said, that's it. I finished. And I walked by this pub. I walked by the pub, and I swear on my life, right? I walked by, and I'm, I'm 20 yards by the pub. It was called the Saddling. It set his ass. And mm-hmm. I thought, I looked back and I thought, no, I'll, go, I'll just go and have a half, half a beer. And I'll tell you something, I went in that pub and then half a beer. And the rest, No, I was 21, so I'm not getting up. I'm not in a drink since I was probably 25, okay? So that four years, right, let me tell you something. It was an absolute nightmare, nightmare. Then I started getting the hangovers. Yeah. I was doing geographicals. You know, I was in Blackpool, Morecambe, Southport, and I took the booze with me. And then I was up in, I was in Nottingham, you know, in Birmingham, in Wolverhampton, places like that, all over. Nobody knew where I was. And you know what? There was always a drink there. There was always a drink. Yeah, what were you telling yourself at that time? You're, you're moving, you're taking all these geographicals. In other words, you were trying to get the geographical cure for your own alcoholism along the way, and it just wasn't working. I, was, I, was, I worked in the building trade. I always tried to do a day's work out. I'm a grafter. I'm a grafter, you know? It, it was like, nah, it was like, fuck this town. I'm out. You know what I mean? Like cowboys. And then, right, the last knockings were like I told you, right, was um, I was down in Bristol. And I worked for I worked for Wimpy, and then mm-hmm. that's when I got under. I was told but before that I was in Blackpool, and I worked on the Pleasure Beach. Mm-hmm. I did a lot in the Funfairs and all that. Blackpool, Southport, Morecambe, like course, holiday resorts. You know Blackpool. You've heard of Blackpool? Sure, I've seen it on TV. Yes. Okay, so I was drinking. Right, there was a, there was some ale come out called Newcastle Brown, and I tell you what, it was lunatic's broth. The following yeah. morning, your head was like a washing machine. You couldn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you was back on it. It was heavy, heavy stuff. And then finished up in Bristol. I was taking amphetamines. I was taking speed, decks, all that stuff. To be able to stay up at night and, and, and drink more? Yeah, and then basically what happened after that is I come back home and then I went down to London. And mm-hmm. that's where I got sobered up. I sobered up in London, in Crawford Street. That was 1st of May, 1962. And I've never had a drink since. When did you first come to your own realization that you had a real problem and you needed help? Before you got to AA, what was it that got you to that frame of mind that you were willing to walk into an AA room? Divine inspiration. Were you at the end of your I was at the end. The booze had stopped working, really. What happened? I phoned AA up and they told me about the meeting. And that was the first one was the um, intergroup meeting, Redcliffe Gardens, right, in London. And the last drink was in the pub. There's a pub over the corner, Redcliffe, Redcliffe Farms. I went in there, I had one drink, I was getting panic attacks, right? Mm-hmm. I had hallucinations, fits, all that stuff. I experienced all that, I just went over it. And I had yeah. it with Scrumpy as well. I took that drink, panic attacks. I wanted to smash the place up. 
insane, crazy, insane yeah. head. And then I went over. The guy come to the door. He said he looked at me. He must have knew what I was, the shape I was in, and everything, i.e., physically and all that. And he said, "Look," he said, "There's a meeting. Do you want to go to it?" And he gave me four shillings in all money, in all English money, four shillings, you know. And he gave me the address, and I went up there. That's how it was. Them days in London, there was no work fines, listening meetings, right? It was the yeah. blind leading the blind. And I went up there and I listened to this guy, Irish guy, right? 18 months old, man. I thought, unbelievable. 18 months old, but without a drink. What were your expectations when you first came in? What were you thinking as you walked through the door of that first meeting? I just, I, to be honest, I would, I would, I, I haven't got a clue, really. I haven't got a clue. Sounds like you were beaten. Yeah, I was beaten the head. I had no introduction. Right, nobody talked. I think somebody might have whispered it, but I was like in London. I sobered up in Hammersmith. Mm -hmm. I was in the a men's hostel. Mm -hmm. You had to get in there on Friday, booking twenty five shillings it were for three days. Right, there was people in there, you know, in the canteen. There was five hundred men, maybe you know, some of them had cancer, or the the most, mm. you know, and all that stuff. And I couldn't even eat in there. You know, I had to go out. I went to a place called Joe Lyons. I got myself a job, and then I got a special bedroom. So I was on my own, had my own key and all that, you know. And I went to the White City. Mm -hmm. yeah, I went down with this guy called Tommy. And Tommy, um, the next time I saw him is when I'm back home, you see. And when I was back home, uh, I, I walked by him. And he looked at me, he said, is that Dennis? I said, yeah. Tommy, yeah. He said, I'm sorry, Dennis, I couldn't see you. He'd gone blind. He was going blind through drink. Oh, no. He was going blind through drink. Did he ever get sober after yeah, that? Yeah, but it, it, oh, that was in the days. He wouldn't recognize it as an illness. So I went to a couple of meetings, right? I got my job at the White City. White City, that was an athletic track, and uh, and this, that, and the other. No, it's BBC. They, they bought it, and they changed it into BBC, but it, you know, they used to play. They used to have boxing there and everything. It was a very big athletic track, White City, and they did Grahams as well, right? And I was gambling, see? So, I said, you know what I mean? That was mm. another problem, by the way. I'm NGA. I'm a bet for 36 years, 37 years. So you've got uh, 37 years in GA? Yeah, 37 years without bet. GA, I've done the 12 steps there and everything, right? And it's the same with the women. I yeah. love the women. But I had to go to SA to sort that out. I'm 20 odd years, but I'm married now. I'm married for 37 years, see? All mm -hmm. the good things come when I got sober, when I really got on the program, right? Yeah, they lead to other things too, don't yeah, they? Yes, it, it says, does they, it not say, God is doing for you what you could not do for yourself? So when you came in in 1962, yeah. What were the meetings like back then compared to now? That's a good question, by the way. In 1962, right, I would say mm -hmm. a lot of things, they were, they were more alcoholics. I would, they weren't, like, mixed. No, they were addicts, right? They were addicts, huh. right? They, yeah. You know, the Charlie, crack, whatever, and booze, right? But before, there was alcoholics. So when you went to an alcoholic meeting, there was AAs, okay? So yeah. the, you was getting a message, but then there was no steps yeah. about Howard. It. it was like what they talk about in the book, uh -huh. you know, with the two step, the, the the step twelve and step one and step twelve, two stepping. You know, there were more alcoholics in London, right? They started about nineteen forty seven, right? They, they split the drug addicts or whatever. They started going to NAs. There was a lot of controversy, and you get the old timers telling you, right? If you started talking about drugs, they would say, Excuse me, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. No, they don't mind because a lot of people are cross addicted, right? And, and that's the way it is. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook. Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. 
This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. You got sober seven years after that convention in 1955. Uh, what I've heard about some of the early meetings uh, before that was it was like the Wild West. Every meeting had its own rules, and because the traditions weren't very well set, you couldn't go from one meeting to the other and expect it to be similar or even the uh, same. I remember the guy, the black guy, come in, and Bill W. He said to Bill W. And I'm going back 1930s. So, uh-huh. uh, they've all like looked at him. What is he doing in here? You're not made like, especially in, in America. No disrespect. So the, this black guy said. I'm an alcoholic. He said, I'm also a drug addict. He said, I'm also gay, right? Bill said, like, he had a chat. And then he went to the ocean group or whatever, one of them groups, right? And he said, what about this? He said, fair enough. And Bill said, okay, he can come in because he had a desire to stop drinking. Tradition three. But let me tell you something. In this country, I'm not sure when it started, Grace Hall brought it over on the Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth, right, on the boat yeah. from America. And they had the first mm-hmm. meeting. It was a Dorchester Hotel in Park Lane. There was Grace Hall, Canadian Bob. There was two people from my neck of the woods, Bolton, right? Mm-hmm. A husband and wife. That was the first day of meeting. But what happened? The steps weren't a bad. Now, I went back home to Manchester and I got, went to meetings there. And that's where I got a sponsor called Bill S. And this is in nineteen. This is in nineteen sixty-two. No, no, this is uh, no, no. I got a minute. It's um, well, no, about sixty-three, sixty-four. Were you without a sponsor during those years, or did you get a sponsor right away? My sponsor was Bill S. He uh-huh. did a lot of service. He did intergroups. He did, you know, conventions a lot. Bill S. Right. So he was looking after me. Okay. Now, we used to go to a meeting in Manchester called Friends Meeting House. That was the first one, mm-hmm. Friends Meeting House. Then there was uh, the Grove Hotel, right? There was another one called BBC mm-hmm. Philharmonic Hall, BBC, where they used to do the music, right? BBC, you know, the uh, radio. So we used to go to their meetings, right? Now, it was just discussion meetings then. It was all discussion meetings. And then... I mm-hmm. stayed around for about four or five years, and then I did a geographical to Brighton. Now, my my yeah. sponsor, Bill S., told me, get the big book, right? It was two quid then. I don't know what, what it was, whether it was second edition, first edition, I don't know. But I did. I bought it mm-hmm. for two pounds. Get your inspiration. You know what I mean? And I did do. And uh, he looked after me. We started a couple of meetings up that way, neck of the woods, Okay. And then what happened, I did the geographical, and I finished up in Brighton. In yeah. Brighton. Now I was in Brighton for a while, 20 years. So Bill S. was your sponsor. He told you to get the big book. Yeah. What did you think of the big book when you read it the first I time? Thought it's, I thought it was great. I thought yeah. it was fantastic. You know, a doctor's opinion, the solution, and those steps and this, that, the other. And to be honest, I like the stories. Yeah, the stories are great. The stories, you know what I mean? I was I was just infatuated with it because I'd know. You see, I was a guy, when I come back, when I come to AA, I was very damaged. I'd been in prison, right? I'd been, I'd been on some heavy stuff called lidactyl between manic depressive psychotics, schizophrenia, right? Between also severe depression. And that's what I had. I was severely depressed. So all I could do for about six years, I would, would just sit down and listen, learn and listen and listen to learn. And that's what happened to me, my friend. Six years. Probably six years. I don't know. But I was always doing the day's work. A working class hero. I'm a working class hero. I love work. That's tradition seven, by the way. It's not about putting money, a, a couple of a tenner in the pot or whatever. 
It's about everything. If you get all of that tradition, seventy tells you. He says, going out there doing a day's work. I've yeah. got to counter yourself. You, we talking about spirituality, you know. We're talking about God's realm, not our realm. Right, God's realm. A working class hero. You know what I mean? Unless you've got money. Anyway, just jumping on to it. When I went to Brighton, right, we was going on. There's a lot of meetings in Brighton, right? I was just, I was doing about four or five a week. Uh-huh. But I was still not, you know, I was gambling, right? And then I got told, you've got to leave your gambling alone. One day, a couple of guys said, they're still gambling, Dennis. Yeah. What are you going to do when you go out to the meeting? Oh, I'll probably have a bet. Is that sobriety? They were telling me what sobriety was. And then a bit later on, it was the same with the women. I love the women. You know what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what it's sobriety is about? Dennis, what are you doing? That's not sobriety, right? Because I haven't done the steps. If you don't go, you're just a dry dog. You're just this guy. If I didn't have done the steps, I'd, I'd have still been the guy who walked through these rooms. I would a dry, frizzled up drunk. And to mind, I wouldn't yeah. want to be that. I think I'd have probably commit suicide. I'd have probably got it. Yeah. Right? Because it's a program of change. When you look back on your own sobriety, Dennis, you were working the AA program, but you didn't go into those other programs for another 20 years or so after you were already in AA, right? And those programs are relatively new compared to AA. Did you have a sense that working the program in AA could just immediately be applied to gambling or sex or some of the other addictions going on? Yeah, but you see, it's a spin-off. It's because we like to get into things. We like to be in short-term fixes, right? It's like drinking, but drinking weren't a short-term fix. It was trying to be a long-term fix. So yeah. you're left with the character defects. This is where the steps come in, step seven. So what you're doing, you're feeding your ego. It's a, yeah. it's a program yeah. of ego deflation. Now, what we do here, Howard, I had to deflate my ego by looking in the step next, step seven, right? Lust, pop, straight away. Greed, pop, sloth, pop, popping our neighbor's wife. No, but I even done that. You got it? Taboo, mm-hmm. old school. Yeah, yeah. Look, our message to build is nothing. We studied the turning point. I come for the overalling. I come for the chains, right? I want the chains. Give me the chains. It says, what have you got to change? It says you've got to change you, yeah. everything. So all them conditioning, I had to get rid of ego deflating propositions. I had to be my goal. Like, you know, with the gambling, I would. It was seven days a week and I was earning money. See, greed. I was street trading. I was up the West End selling ice creams and hot dogs. I was earning a lot of money, but it was all going on gambling and women. Did it feel like alcoholism? It's alcoholism in a different form. Yeah, compulsive stuff. That's what I was getting at. So I'm assuming somewhere along the way, you were pretty well grounded in AA. Yeah, but I had to work on it like serving. I do yeah. know this is, this is me, right? I'll tell you what I do if you don't mind. Sure. This is my service. I've done nothing today. I've been indoors. I watch a bit of cricket. Cricket's been on. I had a good old bath. My wife cooked me a lovely meal. I'm married for 37 years. Congratulations. My wife's still with me because I address the other stuff. I address the, the, the lust. Uh-huh. Thank God give me. And by the way, I'm very God conscious. God is doing for me what I cannot do for myself. I love my God. When did you first get that realization? I went back to my own religion, which is Catholicism. I love it. And I wouldn't do without it, like, you know, sunlight or fresh air, like he says in the book. Three pertinent ideas in chapter five. No human power could relieve your alcoholism. God couldn't want if right. he was hurt. You must mm-hmm. have a concept. If you haven't got a concept, the people who drink out, right, I pulled up after they had a drink and I said, listen, excuse me, can I ask you a personal question? <laughs> they said, yes. I said, when you drunk, when you took that drink, did you ever pray to God before you take that drink or did you ever let God or your eye power right, come into that equation between you and drink? And they said, no. See, 
Yeah. Three pounds and ideas. God's keeping me sober. I'm nothing of myself. I'm not God doing the work. My higher power, God, all day long. Step three, the power of alcoholics anonymous is step three, right? Mm-hmm. Turn your will over. Otherwise, I'm self-centered. And I get into that, and then I feed the ego. Listen to this. If I smash my ego, which is false, by the way, but it's powerful, right? Uh-huh. Then what happens? I've nowhere to go. So I've got to go in God's realms. God's got to take over. That's where God comes into it. So I'm out of that stuff. I'm out of all my conditioning, all the crap and the shit, what I, I um, <laughs> accumulated. I'm out of all that, right? I'm in the God's realm, right? Because my life's unmanageable. Step one, uh-huh. came to believe the power of great in themselves. Step two, turn my will into my life. Of the curse of God, because I can't relieve my body. No human power can relieve your bondage itself. God couldn't want to be restored. That's what I did do. I did do a lot, a lot of work on the steps. I started doing the steps because what happened? This guy was working on the print newspapers, yeah, up in London, and he brought it down. It was an AA member, and he brought the steps. He said, "What about the steps?" He said, "Let's, let's you know what I mean. Let's start a step meeting." Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. They started the step meeting in the YWCA in Brighton at the Austin, it's near the Palace Pier, right? Lovely mm-hmm. spot. And that's what happened. So then we started doing the steps, uh-huh. right? So this is a different ball game. My sponsor, like, he was 48 and a half years sober. His name was Bill S., right? And he passed on. And that's yeah. about, he, was, he would have been about six or three years now, something like that. Even living. Mm. He did so much service. And he used to say to me, service, Dennis. You know, and it was like ashtrays then days, you know, because he smoked. And then, and, and then he was making cups of teas. It sounds like you and he and the others were the backbone of AA in those right. days. Right. It was, it was one of the top Johnnies down here, you know. And uh, it was in London, but now it's in York. But he's, he done service all over the day. It was like... A, he was representative. He was in conventions and everything. He don't. Yeah. and that's what happened. Sounds like you learned a lot from him. I did, and I do it now. Right, I phone people up, Ireland, all over mm. the place. I was in Zoom three years since. I was zooming all over Ireland, Dublin, places like that. Even America, you know what I mean? And San Diego, places like that. Africa, South Africa. What did you think about the Zoom meetings when it first started? Yeah, well, what I thought about it, it was a good thing because everybody was like, you know, there was a lot of fear going about because they didn't have the face-to-face means, right? So mm-hmm. what we're going to do? So they started Zoom. Now, that Zoom's a good thing. But what Zoom should do now is take a back exit and let the people come back to the face-to-face because that's where it started, Bill and Bob. We've lost quite a few members of our meetings to Zoom. Do you know what? Oh, there's a lot of people, right, never been to face-to-face. I, I am on Zoom. That's not right. Bill Wilson knew that sometimes the only thing people would have would be the book. But now people have had Zoom, and I agree with you. That it needs to take a back seat. People need to come back. AA is an eyeball-to-eyeball, knee-to-knee program, isn't it? Of course it, it is. It's eyes-to-eyes, face-to-face, seeing people, seeing the feelings and emotions. Yeah. Not people like so. And what's happening now, they're cutting corners off. There's some of them, right? This six months. They're doing Austin. They're doing Step fours. What's that all about? They've got to get the bum on the seat. Yeah. You know what I mean? Give them a bit of time. You've got to give time. It's recommended. It's like secretaries. Before you did a tour back in the days, I would. I want to tell you something now. You yeah. had to be 12 months sober. If you weren't 12 months, you couldn't do the tour. And do you know what? I'll just talk about Brighton now, right, specific place. And what happened when they did it, right, somebody said, oh, I'm doing the tour. You should get all the members coming up, right? and congratulating them because uh-huh. they're doing the first tour. They're experienced strength and all, but they've got to get a bit behind them. It's not good up to two more doing them. There's no experience there. Mm-hmm. We can all tell you about step one. We was all in here for step one, but experienced strength and all. So 12 months, and it's like, if you did, if it was a secretary of the step meetings, 
you had to do the working knowledge of the step, the full working knowledge. Oh, I've done the steps, right? You're for, as you know, for money, treasure, and yeah. this, that, and the other, and being solvent as well, and two years of literature, because you're buying stuff, you're buying books, you're dealing with cash. It was only the safety guard year. I know the football guy, and they were taking the money. It was only about three months. Next minute, he's gone, he's flirt. Don't put a drink in the arm. Safety card, the newcomer. A lot of people think that in the earlier years, let's say around when you first got sober in the first 10 or 20 years, that AA was much harder on the newcomers than they are today with people saying, if you, if you don't want what we have, here's the door. And nowadays, a lot of people are mollycoddled. What do you think of that? What I would say, right, it's horses for courses. Now, you know, and I know, with Oakies, at that first meeting I'd have been, somebody had gone outside with somebody, some guy with a nice suit and tie, and he would have said, I would have said, well, I'm fucking this, that, and the other, you know, and I, I cry on his shoulder, and he comes up and he gives me like a tenner, with a fiver, which had been big money in them days. I might not be here. You know what I mean? And my illness, like, you know, I can I can deviate for my gains. We're, we're talking about tough love here, aren't we? Yeah. Well, you're talking about tough love. Now, there's nothing, for me, I needed that tough love. It was more AA than it weren't. Nowadays, it's all mixed, right? Some places, you, can't, you know, when you talk about God, they pull in the faces and this, that, and the other. And some people want to change the big book. Well, the fifth edition is coming out, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's what, oh, is it like, you know, it's eight, eight years of age. Well, what it is, I would, I want to tell you something, it's never changed, it's like the Bible. But it's still there. It's still serving a purpose. You yeah. all want to do it. And it's like power money prestige. You get little clicks and all that. You know what I mean? You get the power money prestige in one corner line. You know, hello, hello. I've got my Moorshead side, you know, my BMW or whatever, or my fucking Merc, or my Rolls Royce. I've got it outside. Power, money, prestige. That's yeah. why Bill said, keep it simple. And Dr. Bob, even on his last rides, Dr. Bob, he said to Bill, let's not lose it up, keep it simple. When they wanted to put an Abitel, Prince of 12 Steppers, who was responsible for 4,000 people getting sober into AA. That was Dr. Bob. You needed, you needed fucking tough love. You needed tough love. But it's like, some okay, where are you? I'm in such a place. I'll come down for you at uh, 6 o'clock, right? I'll take you to a meeting. Now, the guy who's taking the new member to the meeting, he's got the car, he's taking him up there. Right. All he needs to do is get outside, bibs the horn, get out there and get to a meeting. He was not doing that. So it's not, oh, I'm sorry, I was this, that, the other. But what he should have done, make a phone call. Uh, there was a woman the other day, listen to this. Mm -hmm. This woman said, when I come to AA, I wanted to change book, book, big book. I wanted to do this, that, and the other. I wanted to do everything. And she had been in there a week in AA. She wanted to change it to her own conception of what it was. The 12-step work in your early years of sobriety was much more granular than it is today. Nowadays, people are directed to a treatment center. You don't see alcoholics picking up the wet drunks as much because they just ship them off to the treatment center. How do you feel about the difference between 12-step early on in your sobriety and today? What does that look like to you? The 12-step work for me is... The pledge, for starters, I am responsible. I, I, I follow that thoroughly. Our particular meeting to the, the, the present, okay? We give big books, right? If you're a new member, if Robert comes in, he's a new member, uh -huh. right? He gets a big book. If Dennis comes in, he's a new member, he gets a big book. And we get a, a list of meetings and a start pack. So that gets them going. Whatever they do, right, after that, it's none of our business. We just tell you, if you want to read doctor's opinion and if you can get into that solution, right, that's it. We yeah. don't, unless they get sponsors, then we then the sponsor will take them through, i.e. step one, uh -huh. step two, step three, right? They will take them. Now, with 12-step work, it's more structured because of the intergroups. The intergroups are doing a good job because they have, they've got people like officers who are doing sort of, i.e. 12-step jobs. 
right? Mm-hmm. Then, like, you will phone them up, they will phone you up. And uh-huh. you might be responding, I've got such a body here, do you want it? Yeah, I'll go and see him. So, to be honest, in a way, it's structured better. In a way, it's a lot more better structured, right? It just depends where you're going to, I would know. I've been in yeah. prison through my drinking, uh-huh. right? My, my, my abusing, right? Now, I want to tell you something. I've done a lot of prisons in London, Wandsworth, Wordsworth Scrubs, uh, Brixton. I don't, don't view ardently, cordially. I've been all around there. I've done 12 step work, right? And because, like, you know, some of them are rap, what they call rap, rap. Yeah. It's a, a, a rehabilitation, uh, narcotics, alcoholics, rap, yeah. right? A, a, a few people just died. I know it's been going a while there. When, the, when these men are released, are they calling you and the other members who take the meetings in to get them into AA once they're out? With the raps, right, you go in. Now, they're on the program, and some of them, they're genuine, some of them are not. But you can't, you can't just say, you know, fucking, you know, on your bike and all that. You yeah. can't do that. You know, you just got to be patient because the ratio of getting somebody is about, about 2% out of uh, 100 or something. It's mm-hmm. astronomical, right? But, you know, we get, as long as we do the good job, you can only pass the message. You can't carry the alkyl. Yeah, of you course. You can only pass the message. That's what I told. Now, you go in there, you're doing, you know, the reading, this and the other meeting, then you share back to you, this and the other. That's great. So things like that are moving on. Uh-huh. I think the hospitals, especially, know, you know, they used to have on the, uh, if you went in the doctor's surgery, they would say, have you got a drinking problem? And it's like a blue card with a question mark. Now, they don't show that. So I think it's because there's no cure for alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Doctors, you know, they're not as worried as possible. But yet, having said that, stats yeah. would say alcoholism and drugs, right, are yeah. causing billions and billions and billions of pounds and losing more lives. They don't tell him many lives are an alcoholic, you know, stats for the alcoholic. But I would say in a month in UK, right, the deficit is about 300. Yeah. Related, you know, alcoholism related. But they don't tell you that. But when when the code come up, the virus and this and the other, they were giving you stats every day. But yeah. we're talking about a problem what's been going on for thousands of years. Alcoholism, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Basically, they're not harming themselves with the fights. Because right. all they need to do, but a doctor, oh, I know, know about alcoholism. The medical profession has said to me, if anybody's got a drinking problem, a mine out, refer them, right, to either a treatment centre, yeah. right, or alcoholics and ominous. You know, give me, oh, do you want to get out? Do you want to finish drinking? Right? They might say, no, that's it. Get on your bike. It's like you. You wanted to pack up drinking. You come to alcoholics and ominous. Well, I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous myself, but I've known an awful lot of people who've gone through the treatment center. What I'm saying to Owen is give them a chance. Oh, absolutely. The most important part of it to me is when the treatment center has done its job, at the end, there has to be a good handoff with AA right there. To me, that's the missing link because a lot of people get out of treatment and the first place they go is to drink or drug because there isn't that good handoff. So that's why in, in Houston and in other places around here, they are really making an effort so that people get identified while they're in treatment with, with AA. And so they come out the door from the treatment center and they walk right through the door into AA. And those are the people who make it. That's right. No, that, that's what's recommended. Uh-huh. Now, at the private hospital, what had happened there after a month, we deep into AA, most of them, some of them don't go, Right. Right. So that's their problem. But what mm-hmm. is it? We focus on step one and we do we do chapter five reading. How it works. How it works. Now, we had a guy the other day called Rob. He's Scottish, right? He lives in Salisbury. Uh-huh. He said to me, I'm six weeks in here, Dennis. He said, I'm, you know, he had his own business, demolition, right? A worker, an uh-huh. adult, you know what I mean? So yeah. uh, he's gone back down to Sol- Salisbury, right? And he said to me, he said, I'm, I'm not messing about with this, Dennis. He said, I'm on the button there. He said, when I get down there, I'm going to meetings. Uh-huh. That, that, if you get somebody like that, or you get another guy coming down, nine months ago, this guy was in the USA Airbase at uh, Beeson, right, in Hertfordshire, right? This is in UK, by the way. 
he uh, he comes back after nine months, right? And he said, Dennis, I'm sober. I'm getting on with the steps and I've got a sponsor. Brilliant. You know what I'm saying, Howard? Brilliant. Uh-huh. You know, that's all you can do with all the will in the world. That's with it. All, you know, there's no like, right, I'm yeah. going to give you an injection and you'll be cured. Hey, I pop, somebody jumps in the arm and you're cured. There's, there's no cure for alcoholism. Science one day might do, but it has not done yet. You know, Dennis, what I wanted to do is to ask you just a few questions about your 61 years in sobriety. What were some of the more remarkable or milestones in your recovery? Looking back over 61 years, what would you say? Well, I've been to dark spots because I haven't worked the program. I'm talking about resentments, this, that, the other, yeah? And I'll tell you, I, I couldn't go yeah. on the resentments, but I prayed to God. I prayed to God. I didn't want to drink, yeah. but it, you know what I was saying? Uh, it kept coming back. Like I say, and I've said it before, power God and my understanding. But when I look back, you know, initially, like you said, it was hard. You know, I was like, you know, because everybody drunk, you know what I mean? And they weren't recognised as an illness. And I just, even my mum and dad didn't understand it. But they never chastised me. They knew I was a bad person without a drink, you know. And then I had to sort myself out, you know what I mean. Uh, I had to work the steps. Yeah. And I had to get rid of the, the things like gambling, uh, sex, and this, that, and the other, right, which come over a period of time, right. It weren't overnight, but it did happen. So I had to become, you know, that they call it a leap of faith. And I had to get that leap of faith right into God's realm. I know I'm very conscious, God conscious, you know, and I practice it. My yeah. gratitude, I've always had my gratitude. My sponsor said to me, cultivate the sense of gratitude. I've always had that sense of gratitude. Another thing, right, on the, on the brighter side, by the way, was, uh, you know, I'd never been anywhere, I would, to be honest, like, you know, I come from Lancashire, like I say, you know what I mean? And, uh, Blackpool, South Morecambe, they were just on the coastline, you know, 40, 50 miles away. And then mm-hmm. when I got sober and I got married, let's say, you know what I mean, me and my wife, we started doing things. You know, I was I was in Norway 28 years since mm-hmm. when Clancy uh, done a convention in Norway, North Law. I was there then and things like that, you know. And my wife's like, you know, she's Brazilian. And she said, one day you'll go to Brazil. And I thought, you're having a laugh, aren't you? Well, I did do. I went three times <laughs> in Brazil. And I've 12 stepped in the Amazon, in the prison, and did things like that. I've been down to Rio and all over, yeah. you know, more or less all over Brazil. And uh, I've been, you know, I've been to meetings yeah. in Germany. I've been to meetings in France, Belgium, south of France. So many times I've been there. I've probably about 12 times been south of France in sobriety and doing my meetings. Everywhere I've been, I've gone with, I've took my sobriety with me and I've gone to my meetings, you know, Monaco, Monte Carlo, Nice, Cannes, Julepan, Serapel, you name it. All, I've travelled a lot that I've do, I have seen a bit, you know, I were talking to people like, and, uh, you know, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Germany. I've never been. And then I'm in Germany. You got it. Right. Where are you from? <laughs> yeah. Poland. Oh, yeah. Tin Dobry. Dobry That's Polish. Right. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. went to meetings there. Uh, the Nova Uchi. It was a, Chris, a new, uh, Christmas time. Seeing at the beautiful hotel in a place called Krakow. You know, and uh, we went to meetings there. Nova Uchi. And I took my wife there. And we're dancing and everything. Great parties. You know, I can't believe it. Are you planning to come to the 2025 convention Where's that? in Vancouver, Canada? I don't know. Well, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed the time we've spent together today, Dennis. I mean, I feel like I've been given a history lesson in AA, but also to watch and to know the amount of service work that you've done and the number of lives that you've touched over 61 years, it kind of boggles my mind. Uh, like a friend of mine used to say, if you don't drink and you don't commit suicide, it gives God a chance to work in your life. And it sounds like that for you. That's right. I'll tell you something, I don't want to end it. You look at me, I lock a million dollars. 
Right. Yeah. I know that myself. Right. And I'm not, that's not ego. But I've had an heart condition since I was born. Uh-huh. I go up to the hospital. I've had heart attacks. I'm diabetic. My knees are gone. I've got osteoarthritis in my knees, right? And I'm fit. And do you know what I, I'll tell you what I contributed to? It's a very important thing. Mm-hmm. Spirituality. Spirituality. Yeah. That's the name of the game. For me, it's spirituality. I don't know about other people. I see people, what they do, and I can't say a word. Mm-hmm. Right? It's because what I can do, and I'll tell you something now, Howard, this, Alcoholics Anomalous, is a miracle. It's a miracle of the, you know, Kissing said, don't you? You want to know what Emily Kissing said? Mm-hmm. The greatest thing what come out of the 20th century was Alcoholics Anomalous. I can say this is a miracle. It is, and, and to watch the way God has worked through you over the years to be of service to so many and to carry the message. Well, that's what it is. What you do, you change it around, don't you? You change it around. You're not the same guy. Listen, if you've got grateful, my, it, it speaks to my actions. Gratitude speaks to my It's like you said to me yesterday, a day before, before me. Yeah. Not, yeah, okay, I'm on. It's no big sweat. You know, I've got any lens. That's what I had to do. I was in a place called Santarém in the Amazons in Brazil. And I'm walking down the Amazons, uh-huh. right? And I'm going to read the book and I'm going to sit by the Amazons. I've a quiet time. time. And this guy was there. No, in the, in the Santarém, there was an air meeting. It's all Brazilian. They speak Portuguese, as you know. And what I did, I'm walking down. He said, amigo, amigo. Uh, you know, a friend, friend, uh-huh. speak a little bit of Portuguese. Not so he was in the car. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going up to Santarém prison. You want to come? Nos vamos. And I said, <laughs> I said, yeah, come on. And I went with him. I went with him and he was talking because he, he speaks fluent Portuguese, you know. He was 12-stepping. Yeah. And I was with him and I just said a few words at the end up like, and, and he understand if you want to be free, live like a bird. He's a paseiros. A bird is a paseiros. I said, no, baby. Babies, no drink. Yeah, that's a beautiful sentiment. Oh, it, it's been a journey like a magic carpet. It sounds like it has been. I love alcoholics and novelists. It's the greatest thing you've ever done. I addressed my gambling. I went to GA. I went to SA. Right, you know I said it, don't you? Yeah. And I'll tell you where else I went. I went to Corda for 30 years, Codependence Anonymous. And I've done, I've done the 12 steps in each of them fellowships, right? And you work the 12 step, and I'll tell you something, low. you reckon that up, 61, right, 37 years without a bed, right, that's like 98 years, over 20 years in SA, that's like only 19 years, and about 30 years in Codependence Cord- Anonymous, so that's like only 50 years, 12 step fellowships. <laughs> Now all you have to do is live to be 150 there, Dennis. Yeah, but you can do that. <laughs> That's what I've done. It's been within the time. Yeah. It's been within the time. It's been in that 61 year. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Right, for the newcomers, <laughs> I want to say one thing. Stick around till the miracle happens. And in and the old timers, if you're having a bad day, get hold of that phone. There's people out there having the worst form. They call it nickel therapy. That's what got AA started when Bill when Bill spoke to Bob. Well, as we wrap this up, I want to tell you thanks so much for doing this. I I honor and respect uh, your sobriety and the service that you've been to AA over the years. I'm confident that people all over the world are going to hear this podcast and be touched by it because you're that kind of guy. And I just wanted to thank you for everything that not only you've done today, but over 61 years of sobriety, you're, uh, you're an amazing man. I love you, and uh, I wish you well in everything that happens. And we'll stay in touch. That's okay. That's, that's my pleasure. And anybody anybody coming over, you you know, you want me to come, give me my number, by all means. If they want to get a few meetings in, yeah, they know where to go. Give me a, a bell, and I'm with them. Thank you, my friend. This has been brilliant. You've, you've done me a great service today. God bless you, Owen, and thanks for uh, listening to me. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Dennis B., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. 
Of course, you can listen to all my interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear all the episodes of the show. And while you're at it, please leave me a rating or review on your podcast app. That'll help others find the show. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 